0: Why don't we do this? Why don't you open up your Bibles to Romans and we're gonna spend our time in chapter eight this week, continuing our study. I'm gonna read our passage and then pray for us as we we dive into the word this morning. And we talk about this idea of spiritual adoption. Romans chapter eight, we're gonna be in verses 14 through 17 this morning. Continuing right where we left off last week, Romans 8.14 says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is powerful. It gives us hope and it tells us who you are, first and foremost, but it also tells us who we are in you. And this morning, our prayer is that as we look at these few verses in Romans, that we would truly be open to allowing it to actually shape who we are, what our identity is, and that that we would be changed because of that, Lord. God, would you allow our hearts to be open to your Holy Spirit this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The concept of, the idea of adoption um, in the Roman culture uh, was a very important one. Uh, So in our passage this morning, Paul is talking to the Roman church more and more about what it means to be changed by the gospel, to be living in the Spirit, and the differences for those who don't live in the Spirit and what their life looks like. He uses the analogy of adoption in doing this. Now, uh, in the Jewish culture, uh, adoption wasn't really a thing. Uh, adoption didn't really exist, and so Paul's words are not him hearkening back to something in the Old Testament, something else that, that that would have been familiar to Jewish Christians. He's instead speaking to something that exists in Roman culture and was a pretty significant part of it, and in doing that, he's trying to kind of illustrate for people exactly what it looks like to really have a relationship with God, to be changed by a relationship with God. In order to understand it, you have to understand a little bit about how adoption worked at that time. Um, you see, uh, first of all, in Roman culture, it was extremely patriarchal. And what that means is that, is that the man, the husband, the father was kind of everything. Um, and so because of that, the father in a Roman family had absolute rights and authority over their son. Uh, things would change with marriage, with daughters, but they would have absolute authority over life of their son. Now, in this passage, first of all, a little disclaimer here: there's a lot of language of sons, a lot of language that have to do with like with men versus women, and and uh, as this is being given in a time that's pretty patriarchal, it doesn't actually mean that everything we're talking about this morning only applies to men and only applies uh, doesn't apply to women. It's kind of everybody. Okay, so when we talk about sons, we're talking about sons and daughters. I um, mean, we're talking about a relationship. With those who adopt, we're talking about parents almost who adopt rather than the language that Paul uses, which would have made more sense in the Roman culture. So in the Roman times, there was this, um, there was this idea, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher some Roman words this morning, so strap in because that's going to happen, um, patria potestos. Pedro Potestas was an idea, it was a concept in Roman culture, and it basically was this concept where a father had absolute authority over his son, and it it stayed that way for the rest of your life. So if I have a son in Roman culture, I am absolutely the authority over his life, and there will never be a point in his life when he isn't technically still under me and my authority, In fact, the authority of a father was so all-encompassing that in Roman society, if if a family had a child and a father simply decided he didn't want that child, he could simply kill it. And it was okay. It was acceptable. Because that father really, truly did have absolute authority over his family, over his children. Nothing got in the way of that. This is something that we would come to see early Christians would begin to show a contrast in the way that they would live, the way they would relate to their own children and families as they would start to show a little bit more compassion toward their families, towards their children, toward their spouses as Christians than people in Roman culture did. But a father had power over even life and death itself. In relation to his father, a Roman son never actually came of age. No matter how old he was, you didn't get old enough that you weren't still under your father. And so for a person to in some way leave their father was a very serious step. In Roman culture, there was also a situation in which a wealthy man would have a lot he's accumulated over his life, but would not have any heirs any male children that he could pass that stuff along to knowing that when he dies it will go to them. As a result of that, what you have invented is this concept of adoption. And the way that it worked in the Roman culture was simple. Adoption was almost entirely uh, a situation where wealthy men found slaves or servants, usually people who were okay walking away from the life they had before, and he would adopt that person into his family. But in order to do that... He had to receive the blessing of the person's father if they were still alive, because again, they still had authority over that person. And so the idea of adoption in Roman society was very different from the way that we think of it and understand it today, and that was what Paul was thinking of when he wrote this to the church in Rome. At that time, a wealthy man would find a slave who would incur debts, who would lived a difficult life, who had no prospects and hope for the future, and he would bring this person in and he would propose to them, let me adopt adopt you. Let me make you my heir and my child. And by doing that, you will enjoy all the rights and privileges of a natural child, a biological child that I could give birth to, my family could give birth to. Uh, there was a very elaborate process in order for this to happen. Uh, there was actually a, a, a sort of a thing that was enacted out, sort of a drama almost that was acted out, where the, the birth father of this slave would have to um, give him over and then ask for him back, and then give him over, and then say, no, I, I still want him back. And then the third time would give him over to the new father and say, okay, fine, you can adopt him. Now, I'm sure that there was, like, there was money that exchanged hands because of this, but But what happened for the person who was adopted was everything about who they were up until that point ceased to exist. Any of your debts were gone. Any of your crimes were forgiven. Everything that you did, the closest thing that we even have to this would be like if you were to like, uh, be in trouble with the IRS or something and legal trouble, and so you move to another country and you go hide somewhere over there, and essentially you know if I go back, all that stuff's waiting for me, but as long as I'm here, I'm a new person, I'm a different person, I have a different life. This is the picture in Paul's mind of what it looks like for a person to become a Christian. For a person to become a Christian, they are a person who has been fortunate enough to have an incredibly wealthy person approach them and say, how about I make you my heir? How about I make you my child? When we think of adoption, horizontally is how we think of it between people, and not necessarily vertically. We miss so much in it because we tend to think of adoption as being a certain way and functioning a certain way. This is a language that Paul uses here to describe who we are in Christ. Last week we talked about living in the spirits and how uh, there's, a, there's two different ways a person can live. You can live according to the Spirit or according to the flesh. And, and what we talked about was that oftentimes what gets in the way of us actually truly living in the Spirit, even as Christians more than anything else, is our love of the flesh and our sort of distraction with simply trying to build comfortable lives that kind of make sense without God. And so we spend all of our time and effort trying to get things situated in life, and then we wonder why perhaps it doesn't feel as though we're walking in the Spirit as Christians. We've got the compartment that we left for the Spirit. Why isn't it there? Why doesn't it feel different? And to that, Paul would say, because you are still having minds that are focused on the flesh, on the world, on the things of this life. And as long as your minds go there first and foremost they will not be able to be minds that are set on the spirit because these two things are opposed to each other. This is all about contrasts, and in the, last way, in the same way that last week we saw the contrast between the flesh and the spirit, this week we see a contrast between the two different types of people who can live in a person's household. This all exists within the household of a wealthy uh, father, a wealthy uh, uh, master, And the contrast that Paul shows us this week is this. You can either be a servant in that household or you can be a son, you can be a child. What he assumes is that you're in the household somehow. He's writing to Christians, he's writing to the people in the Roman church. He's assuming that they're here in the building, mostly going, I'm in the household, I'm a part of the family, I'm a part of the group. And Paul's saying, sure, but who exactly are you? In the family, how exactly do you see yourself in relationship to this master? And you might not be as open to his adoption as you might otherwise believe. There was a couple of things about adoption that were unique in the Roman culture. The first was this adoption only happened because of the costly and the gracious work of the father. When we tend to think about adoption, we think about orphans. We think about children without a father or a mother or without a family. And so when we think about adoption, it tends to bring us to a place of thinking of a person who is in need. For a Roman person to think about adoption, they would not think about the person that is being adopted. They would think about the person who's doing the adopting. They would think in their mind when they hear that word of an incredibly uh, gracious act by a person who has the ability to make such a gracious act and makes it for a specific reason. Can you imagine how many problems in the world would be solved by children just being able to decide that they could be adopted? Like if literally it was just like, go find a house, knock on the door and be like, here I am, deal with it, right? That would be it, right? That would be the end, like, of, 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 of orphans and of children without homes because it would just be like, go, and wherever you go, you get to decide they have to make it work, they welcome you in, you have a new life, and you have a new family. And sadly, that isn't the way that it works, which is, which is terrible. It's just terrible that that isn't really the way that the world works, The way that we, we cannot live in a world in which that could happen because we just don't operate that way. In reality, someone in a position to do so, someone with the resources to do so, and more than anything else, with the will and the intent and the desire to do so, must initiate this adoption. And this is the father of this household. So adoption, biblically, happens first and foremost because of the work of the father, And that is how we have to think about it. The second thing that we see about it that is unique is that adoption is not automatic. It's not a given. It means that you're not born into a thing, but you were brought into the thing. Now, that's probably the most natural thought to us about adoption, is the idea that that a person who's adopted wasn't born into the situation that you're in. And this comes up a lot in Romans because um, we talk a lot here about being a child of God. Which is interesting because the very beginning of Paul's argument and the beginning of Romans for why we need the gospel is that, is that we, uh, are, we are children of God because he created us. But the way Paul talks about that is kind of like, you're going to have a hard time accepting that you're God's child. Here's what's crazy about that. It is true that it's hard for us to actually accept that we're God's child, that he's our father, that he would be a sort of over us, that he would dictate what is right or wrong, that he would be our creator, the one that we come from. Even though it's so hard for us to accept that, probably the one concept that you could most easily agree with, with a non-Christian, a person who is not of the faith, who doesn't buy almost anything that's in the Bible, would probably be this very simple idea that we are children of God. If you were to meet a person who says, oh, I believe in the idea of God in some vague capacity, but it is nothing like the God that you believe, they probably would then next say, we're all children of that God. The very basis of human rights um, in the world in which we live is is built upon the idea that we have an inherent right uh, and value in the life of a human. Where does that come from? Well, we're all children of God. You maybe had conversations with people who would never call themselves Christians and have all kinds of problems with what the Bible teaches, but would very quickly say, I'm a child of God. Others are children of God in a very vague sort of way. And so the reason that we are so willing to believe that, but not what Paul teaches in Romans, is because we like the idea that we start out in a good place with the universe right this idea that I'm a child of God you're a child of God we like the idea of it because it says I'm in a good place with you I'm in a good place with God we're born into something that is good but the very idea of adoption says no Something had to change for you. Something had to change in order for you to be where you need to be with the God of the universe. And that is a hard thing for us to accept. But this is why Paul uses these words. This is why the theology of Christian adoption, why the, why the, the idea of adoption biblically is so massively important for us to understand and to own in our own hearts Because it means us accepting this fact that we were not okay before. That someone had to come along and had to give us a chance for life that we didn't have automatically. The two things that are givens in the adoption that Paul's talking about is that it was initiated by a gracious father. And the fact that It isn't something that you can be born into. One of the hardest things for many of us to accept is the fact that no matter what family you're born into, no matter how familiar you are with the Bible and with church, you're not born into a relationship with God. Something has to happen. You have to actually be adopted by Him, there has to be a change. There's benefits of adoption that are tremendous, and you see them, and I'm gonna use the language of sons, but that's because that's a language that he uses, but this definitely is a sons and daughters kind of a thing. There's a couple of things that we see through adoption. The first is this, that sons who are adopted, the children of God are secure. You are secure. Parenthood is very black and white. Either someone is your child and you're supposed to love them and hold nothing back from them and do everything you can for them or they are not your child and you do not have to love them and you do not have to sacrifice for them and you do not have to do anything for them. It's very black and white in that way. You rarely would talk to a parent who would say something like, I'm just trying to figure out what my child needs and then would read a book or something and go, oh man, well, I just don't think I love them that much. You know? Is there anything a little bit easier? Is there anything that I could do that's about halfway there? Because I just don't have the time right now to, to care about them enough, you know? No, we kind of know that's not how it's supposed to work, right? Because there's something about being the child of someone that is a, a relationship you have that means that you're secure. It means I have a person in the world who's looking out for me more than anyone else might be looking out for me. The relationship I have with my parent, with my father, with my mother, is a relationship that no one else can replicate. And it is a relationship that I depend on a lot. This is why parenting is often very hard and draining. Because, like, if kids need more, let's just say hypothetically, if kids need more than you're wanting to give, right? Uh, You have to keep giving. Right, And that that can be very draining. I've learned this as a parent. Uh, There are days when I get up and I think, I'm only really thinking I'm probably going to give this much. And then they demand more. And I go, I think I have to give more. Because that's the nature of parenting. There's something tremendously good about being a son of God, about being a child of God who was adopted into his household and his family, because it means that we can depend on him fully and know that we are secure. The adoption is permanent. The adoption has happened. And our relationship with him is fundamentally different than anyone else. You can lose a job. You can get kicked out of school. You can get thrown in jail. You can even get deported. But being a child cannot be taken away from you. The relief of a permanent adoption, something that no one can change. Uh, my wife Ellie and I have adopted both of our children, and so I think a lot about that. In this, And I've actually found myself over the course of this last week having to think less about my own experience of adoption and to think more about what the Bible says about it because it's easy for me to kind of color it with the things that I've experienced and what I've had happen. But I will say this, there is no, nothing like, and for many of you who have adopted as well, you know this feeling, there is nothing like the feeling of the adoption being finalized and being completed and knowing that no one can take this child away from you and knowing that no one's going to be in. involved in the process anymore, which is very difficult and very frustrating at times. We were so used to visits from people, absolutely well-intentioned people, whose very job it is is to make sure these children are being loved for and cared for, and they have an important job that needs to happen. But I will tell you that when the day came where it just kind of hit us, that we had gone six months without a home visitor, we had gone six months without someone, without a report that we had to be evaluated on what we were doing, it was a very good feeling. And all of the I don't know how to do this, which we still felt, it still didn't feel like someone else being involved or the, or the unknown of potentially, what if it doesn't work out? What if it doesn't happen? What if somebody could potentially take my child away from me? What if this adoption isn't as secure? There is nothing like the feeling of the security that we know in our relationship with God. And our adoption with him, being a son, living in a household, especially in the Roman culture, is as secure as you can get. When you have a father and you're their son, there is absolutely nothing that can change that fact. There is tremendous security, and it is security that many of us don't enjoy in our daily Christian lives because we don't see ourselves as children of God. We see ourselves as something else. We wonder, why do I not feel so settled and secure in the relationship I have with God? And I think for many of us, it's because we don't actually see ourselves as his adopted children in the way that Paul's talking about. Adoption brings security. And yet... Even though we have such security in God, we often move from being a son of God, a child of God, to something else. Something that looks a lot more like a servant, a worker, or a slave. But that's not who we are even if we begin to believe the lie that we might be. The other thing that sons are is that they are loved. Now, this is the one that a lot of us are gonna be super uncomfortable with. We're gonna be like, okay, let's get past this really quick. I don't wanna talk about things like intimacy and love and all that stuff, that's too touchy feeling Well, here's the thing, okay? Paul is dead set on us being uncomfortable here because he's gonna start talking about this thing, this word, which is like the uncomfortable word for Christians, it's this word, Abba, which is uh, uh, the way that a Christian said, the way that a person at the time said, daddy. And he's like, you are to view your father, you're, you're, you're adopted by God of the universe. And what that means is that when you talk to him, that the kind of intimacy you have with him, the love you have with him is the kind that you can say, daddy, to the very God of the universe. No, thank you. I'm totally uncomfortable with that. I don't say that to anyone ever, is how many people would feel. You've maybe been praying in the, in, with, with a person who says this word. They say Abba or they say Daddy when they're praying and talking to God. And you might feel like that's incredible. Like intimacy that person has with God. You might be like totally uncomfortable by that. Going like, oh my gosh, no, there's, no, there's not enough respect in that. Or there's not enough. Uh, but what Paul says here is he uses this word very clearly. He uses it for a reason. He says... You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. A son is loved. They're not just accepted into a family. They're not just secure. Okay, I don't have to be afraid of getting kicked out or losing this or someone interfering. No, they are experiencing a close personal relationship that is unlike any other. They are vulnerable in that relationship, they are truly themselves in that relationship, and that is okay. Because sons, unlike servants, unlike slaves, unlike friends and coworkers, and even other relatives, sons and daughters are loved, which is the benefit, says Paul, of our adoption in Christ. And something else is that we are assured. Now, assured seems pretty similar to secure, but assured has to do more with how we feel about the security that we have, because there's apparently going to be times in life uh, when we will question whether or not we really are the sons or the daughters of God, as Paul talks to us about And the benefit of being adopted in Roman culture was that you didn't have to question that. You were indeed assured. He goes on to say, uh, after what we just read about Abba, Father, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says the spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, In the Roman culture, when an adoption was happening, there had to be seven witnesses. That's a lot of witnesses. There had to be seven witnesses to an adoption. And when you think about it, it actually makes total sense because what happened was the father would die down the road many years later, and then the son would stand up and say, I am the rightful heir, and then. Guess what? People would show up and say, No, they're not. And then all of a sudden, there's a question. And so there had to be seven witnesses. And of those seven witnesses, six of them could say, No, they're not. They're not. I don't know what they're talking about. That's crazy. Only one of those seven witnesses had to say, No, he's a son. They're adopted. I was there. I can vouch for him. And it's real. There were witnesses that had to, down the road, come back and say. When you talk about witnesses, you're implying something. You're, you're implying that there is going to be a need for testimony. You're implying that there's going to be an accuser who's going to come along and is going to question the legitimacy of this whole thing. And what that accuser is going to do is they're going to say, nope, nope. This person is still a slave. This person is still an orphan. This person is still without a family. This person is still a criminal. This person is still a person with debt. Whatever that is, the accuser will come and they will say that and the person will need a witness to stand up and say no and to provide assurance for the relationship that they have. Assurance. What a son and a daughter have is they have the assurance of knowing that no matter what comes up to cause us to question, that we have the assurance of knowing. He says the very Holy Spirit will speak to us again and again, reminding us, assuring us, no, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. Even though this thing is happening, even though this person says this thing, even though you know what you did yesterday, and you think no child of God would ever do that thing, The spirit comes to you and says, have assurance, I am a witness. I was there, I saw it, I experienced it, and I can testify to the fact that no matter what the accuser would say, you are still a child of God. One of the biggest things that causes us to wonder whether or not we really are still a child of God, whether we are really still uh, who we were, maybe when we were first adopted, or or if we even are adopted, is the pain and the suffering and the things that come into our lives. Because the difficulty is that sons are also disciplined. Sons and daughters are not just loved and assured, but because you are a son or a daughter, you are also disciplined. When really painful things happen in our lives, we ask the question, God, do you love me? I have talked to so many people this week alone who are suffering and enduring pain and have asked, have to ask the question or wondering the question, God, do you love me? If so, why on earth would you let this happen to me? And one of the painful realities, and Paul says it right here, he presumes it as a reality for what a person is going to encounter as a Christian is that they will be disciplined. There will be pain and suffering. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. There will be suffering. Christ himself suffered. Christ himself was loved by God. Christ himself was the perfect child of God and he himself endured suffering. A parent who truly loves their child will discipline them. And discipline is different from harming them or lashing out at them. Discipline is not in anger simply causing someone pain because it makes you feel good or because you think they deserve it, no. Discipline is a loving act of a loving parent. Yet it's often the act of disciplining that often makes children question whether their parents really love them, whether their parents really care about them. When we suffer and we experience pain, we question if God is real, and if so, if he actually does care about us. I'll never forget my son, when he was very young, had these sort of skin-like moles in some spots on his neck and on his face, and we had to take him to a dermatologist, and they had to burn him off. Uh, with with nitrogen, liquid nitrogen or whatever. So we went to the doctor and they said, just hug him as tight as you can and we'll just go one after the other. Oh gosh, one of the most excruciating things to endure as a parent is holding your child, embracing them, knowing that they're enduring pain that they don't understand. They don't have any way of comprehending. He was too... And in their mind, they're probably associating you, obviously they're associating you with the pain, right? There are two different types of appointments that happen when you have a baby. There's ones with shots and ones without shots. Those are very different kinds of appointments. Hey, Ellie had the doctor go, pretty good. Hey, Ellie had the doctor go, he had to get shots, oh boy. I've got so many pictures on my phone of like, of like the aftermath of those times because, uh, and, and all of the stuff that had to happen afterwards to try to bring them back from this terrible thought. But to imagine what it is to be a child in those moments is remarkably similar to what it is to experience pain and to look and go, God, why on earth would you allow me to endure this thing? But it is because we love our children, it is because we care about our children, that we do allow them to endure and go through things that we know will shape them and we know will not rob them of what truly matters the most. It is our care for them that allows us to do it. And sometimes it's not just the pain and the suffering, it's downright confusion. There was a day once when my son was young where... I only say this part of it because it adds to the confusion. I was taking a shower, and Ellie breaks in and says, Tegan has a jelly bean stuck in his nose, and it was way up there. And so imagine the most chaotic, confusing situation ever. Uh, By the grace of God, the week before, while having random small talk with a guy at church, he told me, he told me while we were talking in the lobby at church about how to get a Lego out of a kid's nose. And so I instantly... This is the, the weirdest thing you've ever heard. Here we go. I instantly covered up one of his nostrils, put my mouth over his, and blew as hard as I could. And it forced a jelly bean out of his other nostril. I was a hero. It's the closest thing I've ever been to being a hero in my life. And also the weirdest thing that I've ever done. I think Ellie was like really impressed. She's like, wow, how'd you know about this, right? I'm like, man, I got to tell this guy how much this helped me, right? Now imagine what it's like to be my son in that situation, right? Like nothing about this situation makes any sense. Nothing about this is reasonable. It's the weirdest thing I've ever found myself in in my life. And then he of course picked it up immediately and ate it. (laughs) I'm sure there's all kinds of metaphors that I could go on with with that, but I'm not going to. The truth about it is this. There is absolutely no point in life when we get used to discipline. There is no point in life when we get used to pain. There is no point in life when another person, when something causes you pain and you go, I know, that's a good thing. It's because they love me. It just never feels that way. It will never feel natural. It will never feel good. If it does, there's probably something wrong there and it shouldn't. There will never be a point in our life where we will endure suffering and we will not ask the question, have to ask the question, does God love me? But the good news is that we are assured by the Holy Spirit who's a witness to our adoption, who says to us, you are still just as important to God. He is just as real. And it makes me feel good to know that I need to hear that. That like it's written in here. It's not like there's this other book that Paul wrote that not a lot of people read where it was like, if you're struggling, read this stuff, but only some people will. In the very argument for our adoption, he says, there's going to be points when you're going to question it. And the good news is the Holy Spirit is a witness to the adoption you've experienced. There are so many good things to being children of God, but the truth is we seem so inclined to not live as his children, but to live another way. In the gospel of Luke, we hear about the story of the prodigal son, which is really a story about a gracious father and about two sons, both who are totally prodigals in different ways. And one son leaves and then comes back asking to be a servant and nothing else. Comes back to the father fully planning to simply be allowed to maybe live with the pigs, serve him as, as, a, as, as one of his slaves and hope for nothing more. And what the father finds in his older son, as this whole parable unfolds, as he celebrates the younger son, he welcomes him back, throws a party for him, gives him his robe, puts a ring on his finger, has a feast for him, as his older son, the one that never went anywhere, was living as a servant the entire time. Because his words to his father and all of his anger are, I slaved away for you all these years. You never threw me a party. You never put your coat on my back. You never put a ring on my finger. You see, there is something that we see in that very parable that Jesus told that tells us what we are inclined to do. And it is that we are inclined to not live as children of God, even though he's given us every reason to. There is no greater encouragement to us in our trial and our suffering and in our pain than one of the things, I read this in Psalm 37 this last week, where David says this, the steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Though he stumble, though he fall, he will not be cast headlong, which is like this total posture of complete and total defeat and abandonment, because he is a child of God. But this still causes us to question who we are in him and how we live in him. And what Paul warns them about again and again is that they will, they will be tempted to revert back into slavery. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. There are two different spirits by which we can live. There are two different ways that we can see ourselves. The first is as sons. The second is as slaves who are, who are driven by fear of their master. And there is something about us that will pull us in that direction every time. And we must be reminded that we are children of God. One of the places where we see this happen, the clearest, is actually um, in the church in Galatia. Paul writes um, to the Galatian church, a church of people who have forgotten their identity in God. And it has manifested itself in a couple of very specific ways. These are the ways that you know that you're living as a servant and you're not living as a son or a daughter of God. The first thing that we see, and we see it happen to all these people in this church, and we know what's happening in the church because of when you read Galatians, Paul's talking to these specific things. He's saying, knock it off, knock it off, don't do this, don't see yourself this way, and stop acting this way because you're getting it all wrong. The first thing is that slaves work and they earn. So the church in Galatia had become a place filled with people who had started seeing Christianity, their faith in following Jesus, as a series of things they needed to obey. Their faith had become about obedience to rules, customs, outward behavior. It all had to do with that. As we're pulled away oftentimes from this identity we have as children of God, one of the ways we know that is when we start to see God as someone who expects us to behave a certain way because that's what our relationship with him is rooted in. That's how a slave operated at the time. Houses were filled. A wealthy father and head of a household had servants and they had children. And oftentimes when they're all pretty young, uh, they all look pretty similar to one another because the father's telling them what to do. But as they get older, they start to live very different lives and have different relationships with the father. You know a servant because a servant is focused on the work that they have to do, and they know that if they don't do good enough work, that they will no longer be able to serve the master. This is how servants worked at the time. We find ourselves drawn to behavior, actions, work, and we find ourselves drawn to compete. The other thing that you see happen with the church was uh, in Galatia was uh, it, they started having relationship problems. People were fighting with each other all the time. What happens when a group of people forget that they're children of God and they start to think of themselves as, as workers, as servants, as slaves of God? They start to compare with each other. They go, well, at least I'm better than them. At least I work harder than them, right? They start to come up with ways to kind of like uh, be against each other, and there begins to be all this conflict, and that's what happened in the church in Galatia. But the last thing that we see is we see, and I don't have a slide for this, but it should be in here. The last thing that we see is that slaves lose their joy. We see a a people who lose joy. Joy. They're not joyful. You cannot joyfully serve uh, in the same way that you can be a child of someone. And we see the church in Galatia lose their joy for the Lord, and Paul have to talk with them about how to get that back. His response to them, his response to all of these things that they've lost and this way they've begun to live is this. He says in Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's response to a legalistic, joyless, fighting group of people is to remind them the work that has been done so that they can be adopted children of God. It's almost kind of like a cure-all. And what Paul says to the church is, if there is a thing that I must remind you of and get you set back to and focused on and seeing as your main identity in all of life, it is this, you have been adopted by a gracious and loving father. The work has been done because of what Christ did, because of the gospel, you have been adopted. Your old life is gone. You have a new identity in him. The spirit assures you of this. And because he is a loving father, that redefines everything in the world in which you live and the life that you live. This changes everything for you. even to the point that he is someone you would call your daddy. Abba, Father, Paul repeats it again to the church in Galatia. I can't think of anything that must have sounded more infuriating to a joyless, fighting, legalistic group of people than someone saying you got to start calling God daddy again. Oh. They're probably like, come on, man. That's not what we need to hear right now we got other issues. We need to figure out how to be more obedient. We need to figure out how to figure out who's actually doing a better job around here than other people, right? we got to figure out how to, you know, be okay even though it seems like we've lost our hope and we've lost our joy. And Paul's response to them is, you are children of God. There is nothing more important that each and every one of us needs to hear today as we are in this passage in Romans then simply this. Um, If you have placed your faith in Christ because of the work he has done, not because of anything that you've done to deserve it, you have been adopted into the household of God. There are so many good things that come with that. But above every other promise and good thing that comes that we're going to focus on next week, the inheritance that we are owed, the things that we have to look forward to, the things that we can hope in and be assured in, we know first and foremost this, that we have a Father who loves us. And no matter how things look in our lives, no matter how we feel about ourselves, that the answer is to maybe try to shift a little bit from the things that we're focused on that are going on in our lives. Try to shift a little bit from an obsession with how we see ourselves and the things that we do and the things that we're not doing well and we are doing well, and instead to focus on our Father. To say, you are the point. You are the one that I'm rooted in. The more that I can look to you, appreciate you, be overwhelmed with gratefulness for you and who you are and what you've done for me, the more I can live as a child of God, which is the absolute only way to live. Let's pray. Father, I know that in the same way that children question whether their parents really love them when they suffer, when things are hard, even in just thinking about the news that Matt shared earlier that when you call us to do something that seems good and right, that it can still involve pain and hardship. That it is in some of those situations that we ask ourselves, is our God not a big enough God that he can do away with the bad side of this? Is our God not a big enough God that he can handle this? And, and Lord, your word to us, your spirit assures us, witnesses to us in this moment, in this time, That no matter what we are enduring, no matter how much we think we've failed, no matter how much we um, are struggling and questioning and doubting, Father, we are your children. You have adopted us into your home, Lord. God, we are so grateful for that. Would you help us to fix our minds on that as we continue to worship this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.